Well, thank you for those kind words, Pastor Greg. If you have your Bibles, would you open with me to Numbers chapter 17? In the Pew Bible, it's page 126. I was reminiscing with Pastor Chris yesterday about the number of years we've been doing these camps, and he informed me of something I didn't know, but there will be campers this year who are not alive the first time we did these camps. And he said, Carl, you can tell someone this year, I've been doing these camps longer than you've been alive. I can use that as a threat against a child. I will not threaten any children at the camp. That will not be happening, but it is a joy to be back and to minister and to be ministered to by you guys, by your church. You have done many things for me. I'm very grateful for the time I had here. And uh, many of the relationships that I built here um, just really profited from spiritually. Those internships with Pastor Greg were really more of just learning how to become a man, more so than learning more, you know, things about church. But uh, the Lord taught me a lot. I'm very grateful for it. If you're in Numbers chapter 17, let's read the entire chapter together. Numbers chapter 17. The text says this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses as the Lord commanded him, so he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish, we are undone, we are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? What is the greatest fear of a storyteller? If you assembled a group of children and you were going to tell them the story of the tortoise and the hare, what would be your greatest fear? Well, probably that everyone in the group had already heard the story. Or maybe even worse, no one had save one child, and that child did not have the wherewithal to restrain himself from spoiling the end of the story for everyone listening. 
You get in 30 seconds into your story, you're giving this dramatic reading, and then instantaneously the child exclaims, the tortoise wins the race. And all the children have this massive letdown. You have a massive letdown because the children have lost their experience, that, that discovery of learning what happens to the tortoise and the hare. Probably the greatest fear of a storyteller is a spoiler. Our society goes at great lengths to avoid spoilers. People will record you know, television shows or movies or, or sporting events, and they will turn off all their social media. They'll put away their phone because they don't want to know what happens at the end. They want to experience it in the moment. Why is this pertinent to our study this morning? Well, it's because when we read the Scriptures, when we turn to the Bible, the Old Testament, particularly stories, narratives, oftentimes we already know the end of the story. And so as we've read a story maybe one, two, three, four, five times, we already know that David kills Goliath. We already know that Joseph does not die in Egypt. We already know the outcome of the story. Look with me in your Bibles at Numbers chapter 17, verse 13. The, the chapter ends on a cliffhanger. But for you, you, you probably know it's not really a cliffhanger. Look at the last mark of punctuation in the chapter. What is it? It's a question. The people of Israel, God's people, are, are, are nervous. They're scared. Look at the repetition. They say, behold, we perish. We are undone. They're, they're repeating themselves like a scared individual. And there's this cliffhanger. Are we all going to die? But yet for us, we know, no, they're not all going to die. They're going to enter into the promised land. And so we miss really the drama, the tension that's going on in this passage. But put aside your knowledge of the ending for a moment. Imagine you, you don't know that they enter the land. Imagine Numbers chapter 17, verse 13 is the last thing you have read. All you've read is from Genesis to Numbers 17, 13. What is the image you have in your mind of God's plan to redeem this people? Is it going according to plan? Well, you would probably come to the conclusion things are spiraling out of control. Just two chapters earlier, God's people are on the verge of entering the promised land, and they fail. And then in the end of chapter 16, look at the last couple verses of chapter 16. It says in verse 49, there's a plague that happens in response to a rebellion of God's people, and 14,700 are killed. It doesn't seem like this is going according to plan. God, what is going on? You redeemed this people from Egypt, and now they're sentenced to 40 years in the wilderness. They're probably not even going to survive those 40 years. God, what is going on? We miss the tension of the story. And so the sermon this morning is quite simple. There are two simple points, and that is the problem that the Israelites raise in this text, number 17, verse 13. And it's this question, are we all to perish? So this morning we'll look at the problem, and then secondly we'll look at the solution. Very simple, the problem and the solution. Look with me at verse 13 closely, and let's examine the nature of this problem. Number 17, verse 13, the text says, Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, shall die. There the problem is succinctly stated. This is a problem of space. 
of coordinates of two beings in relation to one another. When we read our Bibles, we don't often think in terms of spatial awareness or where objects or people are in relation to one another, but in this passage, it's very significant. You notice language that draws attention to space. Look at verse 13. It says, everyone who comes near. That's language of space, of proximity, of approaching. Maybe to demonstrate this, um, if you were to look at a picture of something that happened in the year of 2020, you would notice things about the spacing, maybe of people standing in a line, maybe there's more distance between the people. You would notice things going on in the spacing that you wouldn't maybe necessarily notice if you were to just read about it. If you were to have a picture of these texts, number 16 and number 17, you would realize there are things going on in relation of space, one being to another, that are very significant. This theme of space is significant. Numbers 16 and 17 really are one story. Look with me back to the very beginning of Numbers chapter 16, and you'll see language that is referencing space. You know, objects, beings in relation to another, proximity. Look with me at Numbers chapter 16, verse 5. We don't have the time to go through the entire chapter, but just look with the wording Look at the wording of this text. Number 16.5, he said to Korah, Moses is speaking to Korah, who's rebelling against God's appointed leadership. And he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy. And notice this language again. And will bring him near to him. And then it's repeated, the one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. This problem, the problem that the Israelites are drawing attention to is a problem of space. It's a problem of approaching God's presence in the tabernacle. This language is repeated in chapter 16. Look with me at chapter 16, verse 40. Again, now after the rebellion has been put down, there's a sign given, and that sign is recounted in chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 40. It says this, to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron, and notice the language again, should draw near. There's attention being given to space, to approaching the tabernacle. In this theme of space, of of relationships, of proximity, of distance, of approaching, isn't just found in Numbers 16 and 17. It actually runs throughout the book of Numbers. Just... For a moment, turn with me to the very beginning of Numbers, and I would like to show you this. If you're sitting there wondering, what in the world is Numbers about? That's a strange title for a book. It's not an underestimate, under, understatement to say that Numbers is about Numbers, but there is something else very important in the book of Numbers, and that is this idea of space. It's the idea of relationships, of distance, of location, geographically. Numbers chapter 1 is a census, but look with me at the end of chapter 1. There's one tribe that's not counted, it's Levi. And look what's described about the role of this tribe. And be looking for ideas, language of space, of relationship. Numbers chapter 1, verse 51 through 53. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle is to be pitched, the the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Verse 53, the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath 
on the congregation of the people of Israel. There's something significant about the tabernacle that is a threat, that has the potential to bring about death to God's people. And that is really significant in Numbers because if you look at the very next chapter in Numbers, we're talking about Numbers, Numbers is about Numbers, but it's also about space, and this is a problem that God's people have come to the realization, Numbers chapter 17, verse 13, and at the center of the camp is the tabernacle. In other words, all of Israel is revolving around something that could end their life. The problem is a problem of space. Turn with me back to chapter num- Numbers chapter 17. It's not just about space. It really can be clarified. You can clarify the nature is a problem of choosing. Whom has the Lord chosen to enter into that space? Look with me at Numbers chapter 17, verse 5. This is the whole reason number 17 exists. Verse 5 succinctly stated, The staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. That same verb is repeated in Numbers chapter 16, verse 5, when Moses is speaking to Korah, the one whom the Lord chooses, that person may enter the space that the Lord is dwelling in. That person may draw near. This is a problem of who may draw near to the Lord. Who has the Lord chosen? Well, that raises maybe a question in your mind. I don't understand why a space could be deadly. Like, that isn't something we typically think about. Why is it that the tabernacle is so deadly? Is there something significant about it? And there really isn't any great modern parallel to this. I tried thinking of one. The only thing I could think of is maybe a couple of years, it was only a couple of years ago that there was a garnering on the internet of a, a large group of people who were supposedly going to storm Area 51. And you can all imagine what the outcome of that would have been. Okay. That's really the only comparison you could maybe draw. This problem is if the people of God draw near to God's presence, the outcome is fatal. The outcome is death. That's the conclusion they come to in verse 13. So what was it, why was it that if they approached the tabernacle, why was it that they drew near to God? Why was that so deadly? Well, do you know what was in the tabernacle? What was present there? Was it a bunch of relics? Some items? Some gold and silver? No, actually there's something very significant in the grand scheme of the entire scriptures that's happening there. And that is God is manifesting His glory. God is dwelling among the people. So that if they were to enter into the presence of God, they would die. That becomes really significant because it is not an understatement to say that much of the Scriptures, if not all the Scriptures, are consumed with, with several themes, but one of the themes is God dwelling with man. You think back how the Bible begins. God dwelling with man in a garden and how the Scriptures end. God dwelling again with His people in the New Jerusalem. And a statement in Revelation 21.3, God is dwelling with man. God desires to dwell with man so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, on earth to be the solution to this problem. God desires to dwell with man, but 
there's this problem that if man comes into the presence of God, man will not survive. The tension exists. How can man, sinful, how can man, unholy, not like God is holy, how can man dwell with God? How is that possible? We see the nature of this problem. Stop for a moment and consider, is this problem unique to the people of Israel? Or is this a problem that every person faces? In other words, is this a universal problem for all of mankind? Can man, sinful, wicked, condemned by the law, enter into the presence of God unrighteous? Or what will, and if they do, what will be the outcome? Will the outcome be life? Or will it be death? God's presence is holy. He doesn't tolerate any sin. And so to enter into the presence of God as a sinner is fatal. It's impossible. God's glory is consuming. We see the nature of this problem, but there's one other thing I would like to draw attention to about this problem, and that is its position in the text. If you look at Numbers chapter 17, verse 13, the statement about a fear of death, of drawing near to, the, to God, occurs at the end of the chapter. But if you've been reading Numbers 16 and 17, this doesn't seem to fit. Like, why wouldn't the Israelites realize this earlier? Maybe in chapter 16, verse 31 through 35, when Korah's rebellion is put down, the earth swallows him up, all of his followers. So, here we have sinful man, Korah, who is of the tribe of Levi, cousin of Moses, attempting to draw near to God, and he's put to death. Why wouldn't they come to this conclusion there? Or maybe at the end of chapter 16, when 14,700 die, why wouldn't the Israelites come to this conclusion there? Like, like 14,000 people died, you think they would, their next statement would be, are we all going to perish? But no, they come to this conclusion after chapter 17. There's something going on here with the positioning of this conclusion. Is it out of place? But submit to you, no. Actually, it's in the perfect position because this problem is pictured in Numbers chapter 17. This problem is made crystal clear in Numbers 17. So look with me at this passage. Number 17, there is a test taking place. A test is occurring. In verse 5, it's a test to see whom has the Lord chosen. Who may draw near to God? Who may come near to God and not die, but actually remain alive? Who is that individual? That's what the whole rebellion in chapter 16 was concerning. Look at the details of this test with me. It says in chapter, chapter 17, verse 1 and 2, that Moses is to go about all the people and collect from them staffs or a rod large stick and he's going to take that and inscribe on that the name of the leader of each father's house the tribe he's going to inscribe that and really what, what's taking place here is that rod represents that tribe and there's um, other details here that we don't have time to go into but that tribe is going to be placed that, that rod is going to be placed staff is going to be put in the tabernacle, in God's presence. And look at the outcome that is expected. 
Look at the outcome that's expected. Look at verse 5. It says, The staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. So, the test is clarified. Moses has 12 staffs. One of them belongs to Aaron. And they're going to be brought into God's presence. And one of them is going to experience life. It's going to sprout. It's going to live. If you ever go around a campfire, there's always one person there. Every campfire, it doesn't matter how many people you have, there's always one person like this. And that is the person, the individual, who throws things into the fire that are not fully dead. They start smoking abundantly. Maybe it's you know, a child. You get, get all these leaves and they think this is going to be great kindling. And they throw it into the fire and smoke comes up. Or they, they think any wood will burn. So they see the tree over there and they, you know, it's a tree you just planted last week. And they break a branch off. And they think, oh, this is a great branch. And they throw it into the fire and no fire occurs. Rather just smoke. Everyone's coughing. And it's not a good scenario whatsoever. That stick, that staff, that rod wasn't fully dead. There was still some life in it. But that is not what's taking place here in this passage. Moses is putting staffs in God's presence. These staffs are dead. No life should occur from this. There should be, there's no miracle grow in the presence of God. There's no watering of the staffs. There's no exposure to advanced sunlight that's going to somehow magically cause them to grow. They're just being brought into God's presence and miraculously, one of those staffs will go from death to life. The one whom God has chosen. Do you see the picture? And this picture is clarified by one more additional detail. And that is this. That in the original language, the word for rod or staff is the same word for tribe. Maybe you've always wondered, why were rods why was that the object that was chosen? Why not a rock? Why couldn't a rock be brought in there and turned into a bush? Why is a rod chosen? Why a staff? It's because there's this play on words, there's this image taking place that when Moses brings the rods into God's presence, it's as if he is bringing all of God's people in one moment into God's presence. Because we know he actually couldn't bring them all in. One, they wouldn't fit. But two, if they did enter, what would be the outcome? Death. They would all die. There is a picture that's required. Look with me at the outcome of this test. Numbers chapter 17, verse 8. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. Some have said this is the first occurrence of an almond joy. Moses brings all these staffs in, and only one experiences life. And not just sprouting, like was, was said. Remember number 17.5, the staff that's brought in will sprout, but look what actually takes place. It doesn't just sprout, it, it puts forth buds, it produces blossoms, and then actually produces ripe almonds all in the space of a single night. Is that possible by any ordinary means? Of course not. This is miraculous. A staff is entering into God's presence dead, and when it comes out, it is alive. And that staff belonged to one person, 
Aaron, and by extension, his children. What about all the other staffs? Look at the text. Sometimes we read so hastily over it, we miss what's going on. Verse 9, Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel. And they looked, and you can almost see the expectation there. And what does the text say? Nothing. They're dead. Implication, verse 13, if the nation seeks to draw near to God, they will not live. And for us this morning, we are faced with that same problem. If we attempt to draw near to God, there is no life for us. Only the one, only the one whom God has chosen may experience life. We know this problem experientially, not just for unbelievers. When you sin, and you do the same thing you've confessed hundreds of times, what is the last thing you want to do? Is it to come near to God in prayer? Is it to draw near to Him? Is it to open His Word and read? No, you instinctively hide yourself from the presence of God. You run from God. The last thing you want to do is to draw near to God. And yet that is what is necessary. We know this as believers. When we sin, we, we draw away from the Lord rather than coming near to Him. What is the solution, not just for the Israelites, what is the solution for us? And that brings us, well, to consider the solution. If you look at the text, verse 13, you might be a little frustrated because it doesn't seem like the question is answered. Are we all to perish? The people ask Moses a question. What's the next piece of dialogue that takes place? Look over at chapter 18, verse 1. What is said? The Lord said to Aaron. And if you look at your heading, you probably don't think you're going to find an answer there. Maybe in your Bible there's a heading over chapter 18. In my Bible... law and narrative. Many situations, the narratives, the narratives set up the legal sections, the laws that are inscribed. In this, which is taking place here, chapter 18, verse 1, is unique. God speaking not to Moses, but to Aaron. And I would like to show you that this morning. So turn with me again to the beginning of, of Numbers. And we're just going to fly through 16 chapters. We're not going to look at every one. But just look at who the Lord chooses to speak to. Numbers 1, verse 1. Whom is the Lord speaking to? The Lord spoke to Moses. Numbers chapter 2. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. 
Numbers chapter 3, verse 5, the Lord spoke to Moses. 3, verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses. 3, verse 14, the Lord spoke to Moses. 3, verse 40, the Lord spoke to Moses. God is not in the habit of speaking to Aaron. Or perhaps my personal favorite, chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron. God has not been making a habit of speaking to, Moses, uh, to Aaron. He speaks to Moses and Aaron together or just Moses. And if he's going to say something to Aaron, hey Moses, go and tell this to Aaron. The text draws attention to that. So when you arrive at chapter 18, after God's people have just been forbidden from entering the land for 40 years, they've failed at the edge of the land of promise, and now there's a rebellion, they come to this conclusion, if we draw near to God, we are going to perish. Solution God speaks to Aaron. What's the implication? The implication is this. There is something about Aaron. And that is the solution. Something about Aaron is the solution to this problem. What is it about Aaron that makes him so special? Why is he the solution to this problem? Well, you look back with me at Numbers chapter 17. How does the test conclude? Look with me at Numbers 17, verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony. And notice this language. To be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me. Notice these words. Lest... They die. Aaron's role is instrumental in preventing death. And you know this. If you look at numbers, you'll see that the Levites, God's people whom chosen, were encamped. There are three groups of Levites. They're encamped around God's presence. And the, the individuals from that group who are encamped directly in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, it's not any of those three groups. It's Moses and Aaron and their families. They are strategically placed right in front of the entrance to God's presence to prevent God's people from drawing near and dying. But beyond that, Numbers chapter 16 makes it clear their role in preventing death in the community. Look at Numbers chapter 16, verse 20. Notice what the Lord says to Moses and to Aaron. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. In other words, Moses and Aaron are directly in front of the entrance to God's glory, God's, where God is manifesting himself. Remove yourself so that there is nothing between my glory and the people. And what will be the consequence? That they will be consumed. But what do Moses and Aaron do? What is their response? They fell on their faces and said, O oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? They intercede. They step in between God and the people and they plead to God on behalf of his people. Aaron intercedes. But beyond that, he does something else. Look with me Chapter, verse 44 of the same chapter, number 1644. Again, the Lord speaks to Moses saying, 
Remove yourself from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Same language. They fall on their faces. Moses says to Aaron, take your censer, put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and notice this language and make atonement for them. Aaron intercedes and Aaron atones. That is the solution for God's people. The one whom God has chosen to draw near to his presence, to come near to him, the one whom they were rebelling against is the one preventing them from dying. He is the one who intercedes, who pleads on their behalf and makes atonement for them. Is this not our own irony? When we sin against Jesus Christ, the one who is ever living to intercede for you, the one who has made atonement for all of your sins, think of the irony when you commit wrong and transgression against that one. Well, what is the solution for you? Now, anyone in here has spoken to Aaron? you have please come talk to me after the service and I'll tell you you didn't actually speak to Aaron no one has spoken to Aaron Aaron is not our high priest what is the solution for us if you go to the Sistine Chapel you'll find a number of paintings numbers done by Michelangelo on the ceiling very renowned very famous but they overshadow a painting by an Italian painter named Samuel Botticelli. And Botticelli painted this painting of Numbers chapter 16, the punishment of Korah. And in that painting, there was something very unique. There is the Arch of Constantine, totally out of the time frame of the actual occurrence of Korah's rebellion. That didn't come, except for thousands of years later. That would be like you seeing a painting of a World War II aircraft carrier, and above the aircraft carrier is the space shuttle flying. Just... You know, the timing is, there's something off. And the reason he did that is he's drawing attention to something on that arch. And on that arch is a Latin inscription of a verse in our New Testament. And I want to take you to that verse. And that is in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And the verse is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4. But I'll begin reading in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. It says this. For every high, high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 4 is the verse that's on that arch. Now that painting was commissioned by a Roman Catholic Pope, someone who believed that you need a man to come in between you and God. And not just Jesus, you need a person from this earth, a, a person who is currently alive, 
You need that person to confess your sins to you and then they will go and plead for you in the presence of God. Think of the irony of that when you read the very next verse in Hebrews chapter 5. So also Christ. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. What is the parallel? Stop reading there for a second. We don't have Aaron as our high priest. We don't have an individual in this neighborhood who's our high priest. There's not someone of the valley who's our high priest. No one in Ogden can be your high priest. No one in Salt Lake. No one in Provo. No one in the entire United States. There's only one who's been chosen by God, who's been appointed to enter into God's presence. And who is that individual? It's this person right here. It's the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ enters into God's presence and currently is there interceding on your behalf because he has made atonement for your sins. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. This is the text we'll close in. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 25. Here we have a very brief contrast between the former priests and Jesus Christ. Notice the language of the text. Think about the problem that we talked about, the problem of drawing near to God. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, being Jesus Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the hope for a believer. This is the hope for one in Christ, that you, when you sin, when you feel ashamed of what you've done, rather than running from God, God desires for you to draw near. Why? Because it glorifies the one who is the only means by which you may draw near, the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, in responding to your own sin, to draw near through Christ is the very action that glorifies God most. It's to come into his presence as a sinner because there is one standing at his right hand pleading. When you sin, you do wrong. Jesus is saying, I died for that sin. My blood covers that sin. Remember that sin no more. There is one interceding on the basis of his atoning work. What's the application of that for us this morning? Well, in one regard, it would be if we are in sin, to repent, to turn from our sin, and to draw near to God. But I think even greater than that for all of us in here, and that is this, to marvel at the one who intercedes for us. That before the throne of God, there is one who is with God, who is pleading on our behalf that we may enter God's presence and experience even now the blessing of life, eternal life, a life that this world cannot offer.
May we marvel at God for that. May we praise the Savior, Jesus Christ, for that because of what he has done on our behalf. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, we come into your presence right now, not on the merits of our work. Lord, for we could never enter your presence in our own strength. We come through Jesus Christ, our intercessor, who has made atonement for our sins. We thank you for his work on our behalf. Father, may we not try and pay for our own sins, try and earn our way back into your presence. May we draw near through Christ in glory and the redemption that is given to us through him. We thank you for this testimony in numbers that exalts the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Give us grace to walk in these ways today and in this week to come, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.